in and of itself because of this. So general thoughts, before we get into some of the debates here, just about what the days are, how this looks, general thoughts as you just hear that read all at once. Um, some of you, I think, came in. I looked down, and there was less people. I looked up, and there's more people. So <laughs> uh, as best as you can, just engage with just the, the uh, way that this kind of just depicts creation. It is certainly easy to get caught in the theology and lose track of what just happened. Any general reflections? Yeah. Order. Yeah. Everything was precise. Mm. Everything was very hologramic. They're all made of plastic and hot. Everything was in order. Yeah, there's very much a thought outness to it, even in here. Yeah. Order, kinds, yes, absolutely. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, yeah, that God would seek to even do something like this is kind of baffling. <laughs> we know some of the other story, but you're just like, uh, yeah, even in and of itself, that would be included. Yes. Yeah, mankind, as Isaac pulled on last week, there's something very unique about our image bearing in the midst of that. And that is certainly a focal point of his creation. I see what you're saying. Yeah, so there's some, some language that makes you start to think, like, what does that mean? Probably, like, referencing some Trinitarian language, but you're like... I mean, if that was all you started to see, you'd be like, what does that mean? That's a weird phrase. But, I mean, we have more theology to back it and understand it, but absolutely. Anything else? So look at these days, just kind of pulling apart. What's going on here? Day one, I have it on your 
handouts that we could just kind of think of the days. I didn't give you what's there. Um, but if you have your Bibles, you can even look into it. What is happening? Day one, if you have your Bibles, you probably want them open to make this a more useful exercise. Yeah, so I see at least, the very least, light and darkness, evening and morning. Yeah, there's at least light and darkness. Like from chaos, like there's light and darkness. Some, something resembling a day that we might hold to. Absolutely. It's just light. Like is that God? Who, what's going on there? <laughs> there's at least some structure, but you get the sense like it's pretty vague at this point. It's at least creating something. And... That is kind of just good to recognize. Like the first day, like there's not much going on here. Uh, second day, what do we have? So we go to verse 6. There's an expanse. Don't know what that means. <laughs> there's some sort of expanse in the midst of the waters. And they separate from the upper waters to the lower waters. And it's like, what in the world is happening? Like there's at least a heavens versus not heavens. <laughs> like you start to see like, man, creating from nothing, ex nihilo, like it's not easy work. I got nothing and not nothing. Heavens, not heavens, I guess. Like it's, it's a very, I'm <laughs> thankful that God knows what he's doing because I'm like, I, I'm following God, but I don't know where we're going. Expanse of the heavens. So we do at least have I just put down heaven, like <laughs> somehow heaven's identified, and maybe it's like a negative version of like everything not, and then you see heaven. Yeah, well, we, we even as we read it, you kind of like this doesn't make sense, but I guess I'll track along. Absolutely, we we have to obey the same way creation did. Yep, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? They, well, there, King James is wanting to, like, they do this also with the pronouns for God. They, they're not necessarily capitalized in the Greek and Hebrew, but oftentimes the King James will because they want to so, show honor and reverence. So that's an interpretive decision they're making. And so there they're trying to show honor and reverence to heaven. I think that's what they're, that's, I think that's the interp the uh, translator's interpretation. So he's just trying to give you a sense of like, this is somewhere where God reigns. So that's his, that's at least his understanding, whether or not it's right. <laughs> you just have to know that that's an interpretation. Yeah. So day two, I just put as, like, you at least have something defined around heaven. Day three. What do we got here? So starting in verse 9. What was that? Yes. So earth and sea, there's some 
formation. It doesn't give a lot of specifics. Like we move from heavens all of a sudden, like if you know anything about the universe, you're like, well, we just zoomed way in on the earth. I, I get this sense. Like, like there's our solar system all of a sudden identified, maybe with no stars, but like he's at least forming our earth. So there's earth, sea, vegetation, plants, right? There's things starting to be formed in the earth. Is that the way you guys see it there? So that would be the third day. Day four, starting in verse 14. Yeah. Now we start to get solar system stuff. Moon and the suns and the stars, two great lights. The greater to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night, the stars... God set them in expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day, over the night, separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And here is almost like, I mean, I think time like was always, but there's, I mean, the, the at least the keeping track of time all of a sudden became very specific. Like the, I mean, the solar system, which helps us to track the years. I mean, it doesn't mean... Time, like if you don't have a clock, time still goes. But <laughs> like you all of a sudden start to see like God putting order around all these things. Like all the mechanics around all of the things in our solar system. So you start to see like all the stuff. We don't, and you realize like how much we don't know just by reading at this point. You're like, there's a lot of things I can put together because I know things about the universe because of big telescopes. But like... It, just as Genesis tells me, it's very simple. Um, day five, I think, is where we're at. So verse 20. Yeah, all of a sudden we see some living creatures. We saw vegetation, plant life, the ability for them to survive. Like it had to be a habitable environment. And all of a sudden you have living creatures. And I think I would assume with like the, like all the plants and vegetation, all of a sudden you got oxygen too. Like that's probably a good thing <laughs> to put in before you put your animals in. You know, like you're building your little aquarium. <laughs> the Lord knows what he's doing, it seems. Um, I probably would have accepted it the other way, but there's a reason. It, like it works within scientific reason as well. It's one of the things you start to realize. Like, wow, that God didn't just magically make animals survive. He actually created it. I mean, it was kind of magical in some sense because he's creating it, but uh, he's creating it within the workings of his world is one of the things I think I start to see. Like, it, it works the way it's supposed to already. So all of a sudden you have at least living creatures, great sea creatures, every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged Bird according to its kind. I actually have no idea why birds at the same time as all the water things. I'm like, why, Lord, are you creating birds at the same Like, is there a reason? I, d I still don't know that I know the answer to that. But it seems to be that they went together. And there's probably a reason. And I can ask the Lord when I get to heaven. Why? <laughs> um, anything else we see, th see there? Interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to pull on. 
be fruitful and multiply, but this is a command like to, seemingly to animals, right? Like animals are meant to fill the earth. Uh, they're meant to keep going. And so many of the things even we see today, like if we're to follow in line with the way God created things to do, like I shouldn't want animals to go extinct in general. If I'm meant to care for God's creation, I shouldn't say generally, like they're meant to fill the earth. Like this is like sin and the brokenness of the world. Yes, there is times that that doesn't go that way, but there's a general expectation that the things God creates continue to produce and fill the earth and make more of themselves, and they are self-sustaining in that nature. And in fact, it overproduces, like we'd looked at at one point. Um, so day five, day six. This is verse 24, yeah. All the livestock, the land animals, the creeping things, down, I mean, from the biggest things down to the smallest things. The beasts of the earth according to their kinds, as Barry, I think you are, Kathy or Barry, one of you had mentioned, according to their kinds, like it's very orderly. Um, and there's a, I mean, there's a ton that happens on the sixth day. All of a sudden, like, all the animals, and then this culminating piece of mankind. And he doesn't fully describe it. It's like mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Which is actually kind of, I mean, just the way this text moves. It's like all of a sudden, like, the order's all, like, a little jumbled. I'm like... I don't know if you guys are this way, but my engineering mind's like, he just described the male and female before he created the female. Like, that's irritating at the best. <laughs> I'm annoyed. I'm following, Lord, but I'm annoyed. So what's going on? But there's that mandate again, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So there's a unique hierarchy that was also just created of order of everything, but then there's also this idea of ruling, dominion, caring. He's placed this for the betterment of his creation, saying this needs something to care for it. It's, it is going to produce, but it needs some care. Like this is before the fall. Like work was intended all of a sudden. There was things to do in God's good creation. And then this um, seventh day, this is probably one of the, uh, mankind is certainly a significant point in creation, but then you get to the seventh day, and it's like the culmination of the entirety of it. And it is like an artist finishing his work and stepping back. And it's like he made this day holy, and all of a sudden it points all the glory to God. It's just like there is a, a heightened sense of the purpose of mankind to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. Like you come to this point where you are meant to rightly stop and acknowledge God. Like that is part of our purpose, part of our created order, part of everything that is good about who we are, stopping to acknowledge God. I mean, that speaks volumes like in a world that says, I don't want to acknowledge God at all. All of a sudden, like, creation just told us, stop and acknowledge God. 
enjoy God, see the things God has done, rest the way God has rested. So there's a couple things that um, we'll look at just really briefly here. There's a creation mandate that starts to come out of things we are meant to do that we can go back to and say, like, this is how, if you want to know who you are, what you're supposed to do, you come back to these things and say, what are the things that help me understand that? There's a, several things here for us. I'll get us going with one is, like, he created us in order, male and female, he created us. Like, there is something that's just defined there. You're made to do this job, and it actually requires both. It's not good complete until there are both. So, like, that is part of how do you fulfill this? Well, it's male and female. He created them. What are some of the other creation mandates you hear in this text of things we're to do? Yep, absolutely. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. We're meant to continue. Go ahead. Have dominion, yep, to rule over it. Subdue it, have dominion over it. Make it into, like there is a starting place, but there's an expectation to continue developing it. With that, I think there's a creation mandate of ownership, responsibility, this idea of stewardship that comes in. Under God's rule, God owns it, but he said, this is a responsibility I've given to you. To neglect it would be to neglect something you were created to do. And he's given it to you, uh, and this one may be slightly different, but almost the same, but to work it, to keep it, you're meant to cultivate this world. You're meant to keep it. You're meant to maintain it. So here is this picture of creation that all of a sudden has just formed. And it is a, I mean, if you get into some of the debates, you kind of lose track of like the majesty of what you just read. Like it is staggering what just happened and how it was described. Uh, and it is good every now and again just to slow down on that and just listen to it and recognize this is a, unreal description of kind of metaphysics. Who are we? Why do we exist? Why are we here? How do we rightly live in this world? It answers huge questions for us in the world um, about who God is, who we are, who we are meant to be in relation to God, in relation to this world. So this becomes, I think as we looked at the beginning of this study, this becomes a foundational book for much of what we believe in the Christian world. So obviously, like, if you're going to disagree here, you start to feel the tension rise. Let's say, if I have a difference of opinion, all of a sudden I'm getting a little, <laughs> my blood pressure goes up. Like, what are you messing with? Are we talking about, like, you've gone apostate? Like, are you walking away from the faith? And so this uh, starts to raise the significance of what's going on. So there are different views on how do we, Look at these days of creation. How long, especially like how long is the period? Is this true? Is this false? What are we thinking here? So one way to think about it would be um, a couple categories here. Genesis 1 to 11, some would say, is basically just a myth. And so is this true? No, it's just a nice story. It's well written, but it's a myth. Like not having any necessary historical reality, but it might be helpful to you in some ways or forms, and just thinking about God generally, but it's largely myth. And so that is one 
view about it. Another one would be Genesis 1 to 11 is not myth, but it is largely figurative. Largely figurative. Another one would be it's neither myth nor entirely literal, but it is partly figurative. And Genesis 1 to 11, lastly, uh, another view is that it should just be taken literally. Just very simply at face value. What it says is what it says. So as you can imagine, that first one, Genesis 1 to 11, is basically myth. That is probably the most damaging of all those views, especially to the foundational beliefs that we have in Christianity. You say, like, what does that one mess with? It's like, none of it matters. None of it's true. Like, it's just, take it for what it is. So you will not find any Orthodox believers believing, Evangelical Orthodox believers saying that Genesis 1 is a myth. And if you hear that, that is one to say, like, that's... Uh, a pretty important claim. But then you get into some of these other ones, um, and immediately, like, one of the things becomes is, like, either it's true or false, and that's the category we want to immediately run to. Uh, but there's plenty of Orthodox believers who've actually fallen into the rest of the three categories. Some who are unorthodox believers who's fallen into maybe the, uh, it's largely figurative category, or allegorical, but then there's lots of views about this. And as you just read Genesis, there's lots of questions that you should have. You know, not tons of answers, but lots of questions that you rightly have. So as we think about um, some of the figures who've held to probably this leaning figurative view, Origen, one of the early church fathers, uh, he would have been extremely allegorical in his view. And he says, we criticize those who say the creation of the world happens during a period of six days long. And he's saying, that was ridiculous. I mean, this is an early church father, right? Like, this is kind of strange to hear that type of language. Augustine actually held the instantaneous creation. Because you go on in Genesis, and all of a sudden there's this word day. And it's like, all of creation happened in a day. I'm like, well, that like, changed my view of day. And Augustine just, like, probably over-applied that and just held to, like, it was instantaneous like, it describes it this way, but it just happened in a moment, in a flash. Um, and so the majority of some of the guys who are Orthodox would say, like, mostly literal, maybe some figurative pieces, but, like, um, like ba Basil, Luther, Calvin, Luther would have held to it very specifically. God said, like, he performed and he condescended in how he explained it, so he didn't have to create it in the space of six days, but Calvin would have said he did this so that we could understand. And so that was Calvin's view, and it's a very good view. And so as you start to get into this, you recognize, man, there's variation. So there's tons and tons of views on this. I'm going to run us through uh, probably the four most prominent. And then if there's questions on others, I've got lots of things you can go read, and <laughs> we won't have enough time, unfortunately. So the first one is this calendar day view, and it's fairly easy to define, and it also can be called the literal, traditional 24-hour view, and so we can describe it this way. This is actually on your sheet, just so you can follow along here. It says, the calendar day view may be described very simply. It accepts the first chapter of Genesis as historical and chronological in character and views the creation week as consisting of six 24-hour days followed by 24-hour by a 24-hour Sabbath. Since Adam and Eve were created as mature adults, so the rest of creation came forth from its maker in its mature form. 
The garden included full-grown trees and animals, which Adam named. Those holding this view believe this, the normal understanding of the creation account, and that this has been the most commonly held in understanding of this account, both in Jewish and Christian history. So those who hold this view would believe it's important to take Genesis 1 very literally. So as you can imagine, a good number of evangelicals hold this. And this is a natural reading of the text. Many of the Israelites would have just heard this and said, like, yeah, that's, I mean, I hear day. I know what to expect in a day. There's nothing wrong with this view. Absolutely not. In fact, there's lots to celebrate. And it's so simple, you can teach it to your kids. Like, how did God do this? And so um, we don't need to undermine this view by any means. In fact, we say that's absolutely orthodox evangelical. I love it. It's wonderful. So what are some of the strengths of this view? Being the most plain reading of the text, I think you can see that there's a historicity of Genesis 1 to 3. It affirms Adam and Eve as being historical. It affirms the fall. It denies the presence of death before the fall being the most widely held in the Reformed Church historically and consistent with New Testament authors. I mean, there's a ton to like about that. It's very simple, very plain. There's things you can hold to there that you can really grab onto. So any weaknesses that we might have here? So one is, go ahead. <laughs> no, good. Yeah. Hmm. Right. So it's just a a calendar issue probably more than it is a creation argument of just when did things shift on which day we recognize. Like it would have moved from the way they did it in the early Jewish. Yeah, Barry, you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there's just a difference in how we think about it. Our own calendars are formed very differently. And so at some point in the history of the church, like we probably got more into the modern church, and we just shuffled it. And we said, we're no longer doing it, counting our days that way. And so it is recognizing this general pattern, but it moves that day. So continuing on here, the weaknesses of this calendar day view. So one of the accusations of um, it being anti-intellectual how to explain the creation of the sun and light af after, uh, and how to harmonize the apparent contradictions between Genesis 1 and 2, these orders within it. And so there's, I think as much as we can say we absolutely love this, does it solve everything? No, it doesn't necessarily solve everything. It doesn't make it completely clear and completely understandable. But does it make it unorthodox? No. And does asking some of those questions make us unorthodox? I would say no. Like, in fact, it's very refreshing even in an apologetic standpoint, for believe, unbelievers to come in and say, like, I don't like, get what's going on here. And for believers to say, like, yeah, I mean, there's challenges still. I think that's actually very refreshing for someone to come in and also say, I mean, like, the scientific community is saying this, and, like, we're doubling down on it. It has to be a certain age. And it's like, sometimes we get staunch and we don't even know why. Um, so it's not to say this is an unorthodox view, but just to recognize, like, yeah, there's, there's challenges. Even if we disagree with large portions of the scientific community, that's a challenge. Am I going to, like, change it because of that? Well, we'll get into that later. But So calendar day view, widely held, very appropriate, very good. Um, another one that many 
orthodox theologians will hold is the day-age interpretation. So this holds to six days of creation of indefinite length. This interpretation comes from the use of the Hebrew word yom or day to refer to periods of time longer than 24 hours. For example, Isaiah 11, 10 through 11 uses the phrase in that day to refer to a period of time. According to, the, um, to that, the six days of creation in this view are taken sequential but overlapping and merging into one another, much as an expression like the day of the Protestant Reformation might have only approximate meaning and might overlap with the day of the Renaissance. While ex uh, proponents of this view might be willing to concede a rough parallel between day one and day four, day two and day five, day three and day six, they would tend to deny that this is an intended parallel by Moses as an author and is commonly claimed as the framework interpretation. So... There's certain ways that you start to read this is like, I mean, the ways that language is used is complex. And at least this acknowledges like, are there different ways that you could read this in an orthodox way? Um, many would say absolutely. Like you could read day that way. But it starts to, I don't know if you guys feel it, like you start to say like, did we just go into heresy? <laughs> did we just make that move? Yeah. Yeah. Well, some would, I mean, if you go back to that calendar, they would say, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they would come into some of those, those pictures of, like, there's no sun and moon, the orbits of the stars. Like, th there's a day to find. It does, it, does it mean he's lying if he says... Well, in the day of the Lord, well, like, is the Bible lying when it says the day of the Lord is like a period of judgment? It's like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, right. Well, they, they would just say, like, I mean, this is God trying to describe something going from chaos to order. Like, is it actually defining a 24-hour period? And so you're not wrong in saying some get very adamant that it does, but then there's others who say, does it require it? And there are others who would say, no, I, we don't think so. And so as you recognize, like, like you would say, I have a view here. And now one of the things I want to walk us through is, like, how do you hold that view next to someone else who really has thought pretty carefully about it and says, this is the way language is allowed to work? at times. And so even though you hear it and you're saying, I assume, because it said evening, morning, one day, that's a 24-hour period, like they're saying, well, that's not the way that day is always used. And so there is flexibility here. So I'm not saying I necessarily hold that view, but there is a, a challenge at least. Yeah, Hebrew. Yom, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. 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 Well, I do think it's meant to pattern things for you to say, like, well, this is how God's creating these. It's in the pattern of six days. And so I think one of the things to see here is just, like, what are you supposed to see? God's creating out of chaos order. Time is one of those things. So there is a, a view that 
um, Orthodox believers, these are people who hold to some very important things, will say, I believe in the historicity of Adam, I believe in the uh, creation of everything by God, and all of a sudden I'm coming to this word day and recognizing, man, there might be more space here. I might have put more emphasis on that than it required, because I heard that initially, and I'm saying, well, it's got to be 24 hours, and they're saying, maybe there's, maybe it's not demanding, maybe it's um, something I assumed. Go ahead. Yeah, so this just gives room within a day, like maybe there's more than, so one thing that's really helpful is to learn how to come into views you may disagree with and just hear it for its fullness. Like is this, and what might I need to disagree with, and what might be something that can be orthodox? And so within this, it's saying like there's more time allowable within, a, within a, what's described as a day. Morning and evening, what's described there? My assumption is 24 hours, very simply. Like I just come to it. And I rush into the text and I assume that has to be. Now, what if all of creation ends up being older when you get to heaven? What are you going to say? Like, God lied to me. <laughs> no, I think you're going to say, like, I must have misunderstood it. And that would, was that going to bother me in heaven? It's like, no, that didn't undermine who God was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't make sense, yeah. Yeah. It's using linguistics, as you brought up last week, it's using language in a way to make it easy for me to grab hold of. And so there's the calendar day view, I, I will say, like it's by far the simplest. My kids get it. It doesn't necessarily explain all the problems, I think, is one of you the things you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And well, I think there's a few things, I'll close regardless where we're at, just showing you guys a few things I would say, regardless of the view, there's a few things you have to get right. There are some things that are non-negotiable, and that would be one of them. So let's 
look at this really quick. So some strengths of the day-age interpretation. The affirmation of the historicity of Genesis 1 through 3. It doesn't say it's non-historical. It says this is very true and real. Using language appropriately. Affirmation of the historicity of Adam and Eve in the fall. Compatibility with much of scientific evidence for the age of the earth and fossil records. Like sometimes there's science on both sides and uh, there's very convincing science at times. It's like, well, it could be older if we don't hold a lot of things static or assumptions that I have today. And so it, it starts to engage apologetically actually with the larger scientific community at times. It's like, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seems like there should be death in there somewhere. Yeah, that's a potential problem. Yeah. Um, yep, so the weaknesses, this is absolutely one. So how to handle the issue of death before the fall reconciles the details from Genesis 1 to 3 with um, this interpretation. So it's, there's a challenge there. It's absolutely right. Um, so if we move on to what you have there, the framework interpretation. Uh, this has many different variations. Uh, um, if you were to look at this, um, Meredith Klein would be a major figure here in um, this probably identify his, his view the best. The basic idea is that the week of creation should be viewed as a metaphor. Moses therefore used the metaphor of a week of creation to model Israel's week. Days one to three represent the creation of the kingdoms. And these parallel days four to six, which represent the creation of the kings to choose the kingdoms. Adam is the king in the earth and God is the king of creation. And so there are many, many people who hold to this, but this is not nearly as prevalent as those other two. Um, and this one kind of moves into a category that I don't know that I like as much, but this is something that many people hold to, and um, they start to say, like, is it possible that this is just a framework for creation? And this one probably, like, causes me a little more, like, consternation, if I'm honest, of, like, what, what is this going towards? But these are not uncareful scholars, is one of the things the way they use literature and language. So some of the strengths of this include, this is still affirming God as creator, going back to Barry's point. Like, what is it doing well? It affirms the historicity of Adam and Eve. So saying it's a framework, they're not saying this is non-historical. They're just saying, like, this is more of a framework. Um, it still identifies the fall, the, and it denies the evolutionary origins. So intelligent design, saying this was all created by God himself. So Genesis 1 to 2 seem to work well together in this, in this view. But there's, so it solves some problems in the text maybe, but it also might create some other ones of like, I want to be able to read the text plainly. And so there are some people who hold this view and, you know, you, you look at it and you, the challenge here is to look at it and say like, what does it do well? What does it keep in the Christian faith? What does it preserve? Weaknesses or objections include this, affirming historicity while denying the literal sequence of Genesis 1. What genre is Genesis 1 in the relationship to the passages like Exodus 20:11 that refer to the days of creation to the framework interpretation of Genesis 1 to 2? So there's a sense that like there's other problems in scriptures that they've got to deal with. 
It's like scripture seems to refer to itself. There's days of creation. If it's just a framework, we've got problems. We've got some pretty severe problems we've got to get around in scripture. And so um, this one be, has maybe some, it harmonizes some challenges when you get into those passages that don't fit sequentially and they've picked up on those. But even if they don't fit sequentially, like you've got some other probably bigger problems in my estimation. But it does still hold to a lot of the orthodox things we want to see. So another one, the analogical day interpretation. So this defines the six days of creation as God's work days, which are analogous and not necessarily identical to our work days, structured for the purpose of setting a pattern for our own rhythm of rest and work. In this view, the six days represent periods of God's historical supernatural activity in preparing and populating the earth as a place for humans to live, love, work, and worship. So there's some strengths to this. The analogical day interpretation include the affirmation again of the historicity of Genesis 1 to 3, the affirmation of the historicity of Adam and Eve, the fall, affirmation of New Testament authors believe the historicity of Genesis 1 to 3, and it also harmonizes Genesis 1 to 2 well. So it solves some of those problems, still has some other problems if it is just analogous to our work week. And so there's you can sense what a lot of these guys are doing is they're trying to make sense of some real serious problems that are created, and they're trying to do it in ways that are still orthodox. And at times, it's like, we don't know what we want to think about this. Do we just hear all these views and just check them out wholesale and say there's absolutely no validity here? We have to view it as a literal six days. Or do we hear them and say, what are the categories that I think through? And some of the big problems that start to come up in the back of our head, I think you have on your, um, your hand out there, there are some apologetic issues that come, come up in our mind. Like you have ones about linguistics, but then you also have ones that are actually just about, like, what am I saying if I give up ground on these? If I was to accept any of these other views, what am I actually saying? So some of the big ones that come up are, I mean, this seems to mess with the authority of Scripture, primarily. This seems to mess with my Bible. This seems to mess with the way I read my Bible. If it's not, day one is 24 hours. And so that is one that we start to recognize. Another one is um, scientific relevance. Like, how does science fit in with Scripture? Like, God did not create things outside of his created world. Like, like it needs to make sense. Like, you should go study God's world. It still should, should work. And so which one precedes the other? And so at times you'll see people trying to raise science above Scripture. And we would have to say, like, well, one, no, that's not true. And the other is it tries to actually create these worlds in which um, you're harmonizing a naturalistic view, which basically excludes God. So there's some aspects of science that start to say, can I come up with a theory about the creation of the world that actually excludes any supernatural being? And so there's a scientific expectation there that I'm going to assume God is not possible to enter in. And it's like trying to harmonize that with a biblical account, like that's actually quite impossible. So like actually evolutionary theory, that's the underlying assumption is naturalistic evolution. Basically saying, if God is present, that's impossible. 
If God is present, that's impossible to be true. So you can't actually harmonize those two, but that doesn't actually mean the base premise of evolution without a naturalistic presupposition is wrong. Because what does evolution say? It's just change over time. Now if you go to like, you know, change over time that assumes there's no possibility of an intelligent designer behind it all, like that's a real problem. <laughs> you recognize the real challenge there. Um, another one that becomes a really big one is the existence of God. Uh, does God exist in the whole thing? That goes back into that scientific world. And then historic reliability. Those are some of our big questions. So one thing, like, I will quote this. The Associate, National Association of Biology Teachers. This is one of the things they say about science. Just to go back to that scientific question. Science is a method of explaining the natural world, they say. It assumes the universe operates according to regularities and that through systematic investigation we can understand these regularities. The method methodology of science emphasizes the logical testing of alternate explanations of natural phenomena against empirical data because science is limited to explaining the natural world by means of natural process it cannot use the supernatural causation in its explanation. Similarly, science precluded from making statements about supernatural forces because these are outside its provenance. Science has increased our knowledge because of the insistence on the search of natural causes. In this way, it becomes clear that only natural process-based explanations are to be allowed as science, and hence, they alone are considered to be adequate to explain how uh, we came to be. It would follow that from this, only a naturalistic evolutionary theory can qualify as scientific or true explanation of ourselves in the world. So you hear the real problem behind that. It is not the fact that science is real, but it assumes there's no way that God is allowed in. So science is not the problem. It's the fact that they just assume you can't let, let God into the conversation. Um, this is a fantastic book I would turn you guys to on this. So Stephen Meyer, Return of the God Hypothesis. One of those things that you've heard of intelligent design, some of those different things that have pushed this. This is him basically pushing in on that premise, saying basically you don't have to exclude God. In fact, you almost, he almost like makes a very compelling scientific case that you need to include God in all of our scientific. And so he's actually pushing back into the, the mainline scientific community saying like, let God back in. It actually makes your science better. Um, one of this, the, the phrases here that comes up is uh, the God of the gaps objection. This is where science gets in here. And one of the ways we started to see this was with Newton. Newton was a believer, and so he basically could not make sense of the entirety of the universe. And I'll just read this. Um, because he used God in areas he couldn't understand. So critics of intelligent design or science-based theistic arguments often cite Newton as a prime example of a scientist who made the God of the gaps blunder. As the story is often told, after Newton successfully used his universal law of gravity to describe the motion of the planets in the solar system, he discovered that the orbits of the outer planets did not conform precisely to the trajectory that he calculated. Further, he apparently realized that the mutual gravitation, gravitational attraction between the outer planets would make the solar system unstable. 
As a result, he allegedly posited episodic interventions of God, or in some other versions of the story, angels to, play, to put the planets back in order in their correct orbits. Later, when the French physicist Laplace showed that how Newton's own laws could account for the observed anomalies, he showed, voila, Newton's postulation of divine action, his God of the gaps, to be unnecessary. So you see what's probably at stake here. Like, well, that proves that God doesn't exist. God can't be here. And if you assume God, you're going to do bad science. And one of the things Stephen Meyer does is he actually shows, it actually pushes you to better science assuming God because it allows you to postulate things that don't quite make sense and then eventually they might be made sense of. So you see, in the midst of all this, I mean, we have extreme chances for disagreement on multiple things. The linguistics, like the apologetics, does God exist? There's lots to be at stake. And so there's this, this little diagram you have on your, on your sheet. It's, it's looking at theological issues, like how seriously do we take differences here? So at the very center, you have absolutes. These are things about, like, who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he not God? Do we believe the Bible? Uh, then you have convictions, things that we really should believe and be settled on. And then you have opinions and questions. And recognizing, like, you get into Genesis, and it's like, well, the temptation is to say, like, all of them are absolutes. Every single idea that I believe about the Bible falls into that center category. And one of the things we have to say is, like, in the Christian church, we're very much called to live in unity as far as possible to be able to see that maybe you're not attacking the core of my beliefs. So you may hold a certain view on creation and say, which category do I place this in? Well, actually, I don't think it's as simple as like take your whole view and place it into one category or the other, but it is actually certain things I would distill out for you to say which ones belong in the center circle. So a couple of the ones, if you were to look at this, um, Uh, where is this? So if we have our convictions about the, the creation account, what is the orthodox view holding to? These go probably closer to the center circle. Scripture is the inerrant word of God. Do any of these views deny the inerrancy of Scripture? We should get excited about that if someone <laughs> denies that. Genesis 1 to 3 is fully historical. We should also get excited if someone wants to say this is non-historical. We lose so many things about sin, the problems in the world, the way the atonement works, the way that God is coming to deal in his redemptive plan. If, if this is not real history, Adam and Eve were uniquely created in God's image as our first parents, with Adam as the covenant head. That is incredibly important. The curse and the discord of the universe begin with the sin of Adam. So you start to see, like, there are things that belong in the very central piece. Now, the age of the days, actually, like I would say, the age of the days is probably not even, or the length of the days is probably not even primarily what the opinion of Genesis was focusing on. Like, what is this text actually doing? So, actually, I don't have a real strong opinion on any of those views uh, because I don't think it's actually the primary purpose of the text. But we do have to know how do you engage with people who have different views and where are they messing with things that really matter. And I would say, take it out of those big categories. If it, is it, can we have fellowship with people who are not calendar day view people? I would say absolutely. 
There's orthodox views outside our own that don't mess with those things. And we just say, like, these are ones I'm not budging on whatsoever. Now I can get into a good, lively debate about the age of the earth. I can get into a good, lively debate about other things. But, I mean, there's problems in the text even with that view. And acknowledging those is good and right to do, to say, man, that doesn't solve everything just linguistically. But there's also big problems like that Stephen Meyer book gets to, like recognizing, like, man, we, we want to assume a biblical worldview. So with that, let's do pray, and we'll come back to this more. There's plenty more we could dive into, so thanks for uh, edging into it with me. Um, I'd love to spend many, many more weeks on this. So let's do pray. Father, we do thank you for, um, Lord, that amidst things that are very, very unclear, at times, things that can seem frustrating, different views. Lord, that you have given us all that we need to trust you, to know you, to follow you. And also, Lord, to learn how to live in fellowship with other believers within the church, even outside our own walls, in a way that we can trust you together. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us as we think through these things and grow and be shaped in a way that is glorifying to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.